Welcome to the Christadelphian Classics Podcast, brought to you by Wilderness Voice, Nazareth, revisited by Robert Roberts, Chapter 25, In Collision with the Pharisees. The exact locality in which Jesus uttered the words considered in the last chapter is not stated and it matters little. It was somewhere in that journey among the cities and villages of Galilee to which he departed after dispatching the twelve on their first preaching tour in twos. During that same journey occurred a small raconteur between Jesus and the rarely absent Pharisees, which, though occupying but a minute or two of time, gave birth to one of the many utterances of wisdom which have been operative for all time ever since. It was on a Sabbath day, in the open air, when many people would be out enjoying the blue sky, clear atmosphere and beautiful scenery of a Syrian climate, in the interval between the synagogue attendances. Jesus also was out and passing through a field of ripening corn, Matthew 12.1, some of the disciples were with him, though not the twelve. Some also of the Pharisees were near and observant, and as they walked along, the disciples began to pluck ears of corn as the law allowed, Deuteronomy 23.25, and rubbing them in their hands to eat the same. The Pharisees, on the outlook for something to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people, seized on this as a breach of the Sabbath law. Thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Well, the breaking of the Sabbath was unlawful, and it is a good thing to be opposed to that which is not lawful. But it is a different thing to show this opposition only when the object is to condemn another. This is a common and grievous form of wickedness. Righteous men are scrupulous round the whole circle of God's commandments and not at one or two points only. And they show their scrupulosity in subjecting their own life to them on all points rather than in hunting up the shortcomings of their neighbours. It is a suspicious thing when a man shows a great and unusual zeal on behalf of some one element of righteousness to score a point against an adversary. Jesus has called such zeal hypocrisy, and the most searching reflection will show that it's nothing else. Zeal of this sort is apt to be very shallow in its construction and is always deaf to reason. The only way to deal with it ineffectually is next to passing by on the other side, which Jesus sometimes did and wisdom sometimes calls for, is to question it on its own premises. This is what Jesus did in this case. Their zeal, ostensibly, was all on behalf of what had been written. Very well. Have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat of the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. If David did an unlawful thing, which the Pharisees palliated, why were they to condemn Jesus and his disciples if a similar palliation existed? 
The palliation in David's case was David's need and David's discretionary power as Yahweh's anointed servant, on whom the Spirit of the Lord rested. An identical palliation existed in the case of Jesus. His disciples were hungry, and he had a far higher measure of divine authority than David. Again, he said, Have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? The priests, notwithstanding the command to do no work on the Sabbath day, were to offer up special sacrifices on that day, or to circumcise children whose eighth day might fall on the Sabbath. That God's will on other points might be done. In doing this, they were blameless, though technically guilty. The Pharisees were aware of this, that the temple law suspended the Sabbath law where the law otherwise required it without involving unrighteousness. Yet they were condemning disciples of Jesus for doing on the Sabbath day what the Sabbath law required, viz. the eating of food to supply nature's wants. And that too under the sanction of one present who was greater than the temple. It was a poor and paltry quibble, as the sanctimonious carpings of enmity generally are. But what a crime when directed against the Son of Man, who is Lord even of the Sabbath day. If ye had known, said Jesus, what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. If ye had known. How much is involved in this? There is a knowledge of which the Pharisees had their full share, which does not go deep enough for the true apprehension of the meaning of things. It's exact enough and apt enough so far as it goes, but it does not go below the outside appearance of things. It stops short at their external form, their human bearings, how they will affect this one and that, and what this one and that will say. The form of an institution is sharply discerned by this class of intellect without any sense of its intent. Israel was never deficient in this microscopical and petty breadth of mind which they possess in wondrous density to this day. With a strong sense of what might be called the mechanical sanctities of the Mosaic law, they lacked the deep probing penetration that goes to the bottom of things and the mental amplitude that can take in the breadth and length and height of which Paul speaks. They accepted and stickled for the washings, the fastings and the sacrifices without seeing what was under it all. Righteousness, mercy, obedience, faith. God rebuked them more than once for the multitude of their sacrifices in the absence of the spiritual salt that made them acceptable. Not that the sacrifices were not enjoined, but that they were out of place when divorced from the sentiments of which God intended them to be the symbol and expression. 
Jesus is here directing them to one of those reproofs by Hosea. 6, 6. I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He says if they had understood this saying, they would not have condemned the disciples for eating corn on the Sabbath. Why not? What had the saying about mercy versus sacrifice to do with the Sabbath? Directly, nothing. But indirectly, everything, as Christ's remark shows. It showed that as in sacrifice, so in the Sabbath, they must obey and interpret the law of it in the spirit in which it was instituted, which was a spirit of mercy and wisdom. The Sabbath was ordained for rest and refreshment, not for penance and oppression. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, as he said on another occasion. As expounders of the law, they ought to have understood this and not to have substituted a censorious legal exactness for the spirit of benevolent common sense in which the commandment originated. The disciples were guiltless, for so he pronounced them, although they ate corn in the fields on the Sabbath day. And the guilty ones were the Pharisees who condemned them, ostensibly in a spirit of zeal for the divine law, but in reality, in a spirit of hostility to him who was, by preeminence, the servant of righteousness, who had mortally hurt their dignity by championing its claims against their own traditions. Leaving them to rankle under the arrow of his righteous words buried in their hearts, he sped his way to the local synagogue. Here there was a large company, and here also were Pharisees, and probably the very men who had attacked him on the Sabbath question in the cornfield. They were all alive on the question. There was a man in the synagogue who had a withered hand. The custom of Jesus was to heal. It became evident, probably from the people calling Christ's attention to the man, that such was Christ's purpose in this case. But it was the Sabbath. Should such a thing be done on such a day? This was the question the Pharisees immediately put. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Christ's answer was an order to the man to stand forth. If a sincere and godly scruple, a fear of violating the will of God, had been the real inspiration of the question the Pharisees had put, it would have received some consideration at the hands of Christ, who was always patient with the contrite. But such was not at all the case, as shown by their habitual disregard of the will of God in a hundred other things. He therefore dealt with their words in anger. He looked round about them, with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, Matthew 3, 5. He asks with flashing eyes, we may well imagine as he glances round, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days? To save life? Or to kill? He waited a moment for an answer. There was none. He follows with another question in tones of righteous warmth. What man is there among you who, if he have a sheep,
fall into a pit on a Sabbath day, will not lay hold and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? There was a force in these argumentative questions propounded before an audience that was simply overwhelming. Away from the presence of the people, doubtless answer would not have failed them. They would have quibbled and confused the issue with all the loquaciousness and finesse which distinguishes Jew and Gentile in the present day when confronted with a dilemma that they will not or cannot face. But the Pharisees desired, above all things, to keep their reputation with the people for common sense, and therefore their tongues were tied. They could not utter a word. They could not appear to contend that it was wrong for a man to save imperiled property on the Sabbath day. They had, therefore, no answer but silence. Jesus gave words to the obvious verdict. Wherefore is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath day? To this verdict, he proceeds to give effect, addressing the man who was standing in the centre of the assembly during this passage of arms, his helpless hand visible to all and all the people looking on with eager interest. He said, stretch forth thy hand. Brief, emphatic words of command. No incantation, no mummery, nothing resembling the mystic ceremonies of Greek priestesses or Persian magicians whose nonsense is reflected in the plays of Shakespeare and in the rites of performing wizards and necromancers. The word of God is powerful as lightning and needs no mystery mongering. The man obeyed. He stretched forth his hand and it was restored whole as the other. The audience broke up in a rapture of admiration. The Pharisees retired discomforted and stung to the quick. They convened a hurried meeting among themselves to see what was to be done. The conclusion they came to was that Jesus must be got rid of in some way. How to compass it they did not exactly see, but that he must be destroyed they were resolved. What a perfectly melancholy picture. A conclave of shallow egotisms. Egotisms are necessarily shallow for with any depth self-consciousness becomes a merely steadying power as intended. A league of pious mediocrity. A league of... A league of pious mediocrities whose piety consisted of long-faced and holy-toned superstition. A band of petty respectabilities whose respectability consisted carefully doing nothing that would hurt a human sensibility or shock human propriety and most carefully and industrially doing or appearing to do what everybody was agreed to consider the right and the meritorious thing a company of ornamental, self-satisfied parasites and monopolists trading in the name of Moses while outraging his wisdom and righteousness, professing to serve God while most skillfully and decisively serving the craft only, simulating mercy and righteousness while systematically practicing the vilest oppression and wickedness in secret. Such 
a set of human contemptibles sitting in solemn judgment on the Son of God, the glorious Son of God, who with power to hurl them all to destruction in a moment, patiently accommodated himself to a worthless population, while exhibiting in their midst the grandeur of God's character in his own compassion and wisdom and dignity, and his power in the undeserved healing of all their diseases. Such a picture is the saddest the sun ever looked down upon. Its sadness is unutterable if we look at it by itself, but enlightenment cannot look at it by itself. It must be looked at in connection with the whole work which it forms but a momentary phase. The completion of that work will show Christ enthroned in the scene of his humiliation under circumstances that will owe their principal satisfaction to the bitter humiliations of any probation in which Christ preceded all his brethren. Jesus heard that the Pharisees were plotting against him. The time to fall into their hands had not come. He therefore made arrangements to depart to another neighbourhood in which, for the time, he would be beyond their reach. The people heard he was going and followed him in great multitudes. He submitted to their company in sorrow for the helpless state that they toiled along the road in a straggling mass. Among them were numerous sick and ailing people who hoped to share the benefits of his healing power. Arrived at the end of the journey, he healed them all. In their jubilant feelings, they avowed their belief that he was the Messiah. Is not this the son of David? He gave their enthusiasm no encouragement. He knew it was of the superficial and transient character of the feeling of any crowd in the immediate receipt of some benefaction. He further knew that his rejection and death were at hand and that the popular feeling in favour would only be an embarrassment. He charged them this, that they should not make him known. Matthew says, 12.17, that Thus was fulfilled that which had been written in Isaiah 42.1. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. The fulfilment of this will be seen in all force if we compare the attitude of Christ during his ministry with the course usually observed by aspirants to popular fame and leadership. He did not get up a political agitation. He did not head a party or get up a sedition. He made no suggestion of revolt against the authorities. He made no appeal to the suffrages of the people on his own behalf. He delivered no harangues intended to inflame them against their rulers and to draw them away from their allegiance and gather them around himself. He quietly went about from place to place doing good in the healing of disease without partiality, announcing the purpose of God and explaining what was acceptable to God and what was not, comforting the poor, encouraging the lovers of righteousness. He counselled no resort to violence. On the contrary, he preached submission. He resorted to none of the artifices of strife. On the contrary, he retired before personal opposition. His occasional ardours and polemical thrusts were all employed in the enforcement of truth 
and never in the promotion of personal or political aims. He never strove or cried out in the public sense of these terms. He abstained so entirely from coercive or constraining measures that he could not be said to break even a bruised reed, though that required no force, or to extinguish a smoking flax, though that was easy of accomplishment. The time will come when he will bring forth judgment unto victory, but till that time should arrive, his part was, and his part continued in all his disciples, to observe a passive attitude with regard to the institution and movements of the present evil world. Knowing this, he forbade the healed and gratified people to make him known. This feature presents itself several times in the course of his life. It is a remarkable and significant one, well deserving of the attention of uncertain believers. If they think it out, it must bring conviction. It is not a usual thing for a public teacher or a leader of any kind to try to stop his own fame or to limit or interfere with his own recognition. Jesus did so regularly. There must have been a reason. What was it? Every suggestion fails but one. It cannot be put down to weakness, for he showed himself strong and independent as teacher was never before. It cannot be put down to policy, for he had none, but voluntarily walked into the jaws of death. It cannot be attributed to the insensibility of the people, for he invinced such compassion towards them as no one ever showed before or since. Why then did he systematically seek to set bounds to his recognition at the hands of the people? He alleges a re- reason that he was about to suffer death. Matthew sixteen twenty twenty one. He did suffer death, we know. It was this reason, and there could be no other, and it proves him a prophet, and it proves him divine. For he said he'd come to lay down his life for the world, and that it was a commandment that he'd received from the Father, John 10.18. The more this is thought about, the weightier it will be felt in the proof that Jesus was the Son of God. Certain of the scribes and Pharisees had joined the crowd and followed him in his departure to another place. Though they saw the marvels of healing he performed, they poo-pooed them as mere tricks of necromancy and attributed them to his league with Beelzebub as on previous occasion. How he dealt with this we have seen in a former chapter. We may now realise the irrational and aggravating character of their demand at this time for a sign. Master, we would see a sign from thee. See a sign? What sign could be available to those who saw no sign in the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, and restoring sight to the blind? If men could seriously attribute such things to Beelzebub, how could they be expected to see anything divine in anything that could be done? And if they make such a suggestion, not seriously, but in flippancy of a scornful animosity, how could they be worthy of any sign at all? Jesus answered in the spirit of these questions 
in doing which Mark informs us that he sighed deeply in his spirit. No wonder his answer was, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. What sign was that? As Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is, the great sign of Christ's divinity would be Christ's resurrection. He would be crucified and killed and buried, but would only lie in the grave for three days. He would come to life again and leave the grave on the morning of the third day. This certainly would be the sign of signs. The prodigies performed by a living man were always open to the suggestion that they were his own performances by some occult natural law peculiar to himself. But how could a dead man raise himself? This sign would be given and none else. Were his wonders of healing then no sign? Certainly they were, as Peter afterwards said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, Acts 2.22. But they were not signs in the sense of the request made by the scribes and Pharisees. They said, show us a sign from heaven. They wanted something showy something spectacular, something impressive. Jesus could have shown them such. He could have shown them 12 legions of angels marshaled in shining phalanx around him. He could have shown them Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim plucked from its base and hurled into the Mediterranean. He could have shown the country filled with the horses and chariots of fire such as surrounded Elisha but there would have been no object in such a display. It would not have wrought conviction. It would merely have gratified an idle curiosity which would have found excuse for disbelief in some reservation or theory of Beelzebub or other. The minds that could not see the hand of God in the healing of multitudes by a word and the raising of the dead would not have seen it in anything. Jesus went further than this on another occasion. He said, If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The truth of this was shown in the case of his own resurrection. The sign of the prophet Jonas produced no effect. The scribes and Pharisees, when this great sign from heaven was granted, shut their eyes and ears and sought to destroy the witnesses and to suppress the miraculous confirmation of the testimony. God did not raise Christ in the presence of the assembled inhabitants of Jerusalem. He could have arranged to have it so, but his object precluded such a plan of operation. It's evident that God intends men to exercise their senses and only grant so much evidence as is sufficient to afford a basis of intelligent faith. From what Jesus says about Moses and the prophets, it's evident 
that the class of mind that cannot be convinced by the evidence contained in the scriptures and the confirmation which it receives in various ways from the history and condition of mankind is too far below the elementary endowments of intelligence to possess the faith that pleases God and without which it's testified it's impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6 How much more must this have been true of those who like the scribes and Pharisees, could listen to Christ's wonderful teaching and behold his wonderful works without perceiving with Nicodemus that he was a teacher come from God. We may therefore understand why he proceeded to give his contemporary generation a poor place in comparison with some of the ancients. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The Ninevites showed some susceptibility to the claims of righteousness at the mouth of an erring prophet. The Queen of Sheba showed some reverent appreciation of excellence coming to her merely as a matter of report, but here was a generation who could set up their opposition to him to whom all the prophets gave witness and who could cry down the impersonation of that wisdom and worth though exhibited in their very mists. It's a wonder that he spoke of them as this wicked generation whom he likened to a cured madman who relapses and allies with himself at the last with seven more others more mad than himself and makes them with them a pandemonium of his house which had been put into an orderly state when he was cured. Even so, says he, shall it be also unto this wicked generation. The history of the case shows the application. At the first, the nation submitted to the preaching of John the Baptist, followed by that of Jesus, and became morally sane. But afterwards, they returned to the leadership of the scribes and Pharisees and sank into a worse state than they were in before and were given over to the destruction at the hands of the Romans. While Jesus was uttering these things, he was surrounded by a crowd who naturally listened with great eagerness to what passed between Jesus and their own clergy for such the scribes and Pharisees were. It requires no great exercise of fancy to imagine the dense, silent packing of people and their eager, outstretched hands straining to catch the words of the speakers. What a privilege to be there, though they did not know it. It generally is the case that people know not the day of their visitation. At this point, the silent attention was broken into. A message came from the skirts of the crowd and was passed over the heads of the people and delivered to Christ by one close to him. Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. Jesus did not receive the intimation with any great manifestation of respect for his relations according to the flesh, thus conspicuously introduced to noticed. He said, probably with an air of quiet dignity, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? 
He did not own to the claim implied in the assertion of blood relationship. In the world, then as now, blood relation was everything. With Jesus, it was nothing outside the special relation that he'd come to create. The relation of men to God in reconciliation, love and obedience. If mothers and brothers were inside the circle of this relation, well and good. If not, he was not theirs, nor they his. He did not know any man after the flesh. His mother and his brothers were to be found among those who did the will of God. To this doctrine he gave emphatic enunciation to, at this time. He stretched forth his hands towards his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Did Jesus mean then to ignore the command of God by Moses that father and mother should be honoured and that near of kin were to be regarded? Nothing could be further from the purpose of him who came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfil. He did not mean to undermine the force of any divine law, but rather to enforce the foundation of all law, viz. the doing the will of God. He meant to say that where his foundation was absent, no law and no relation had any efficacy. The Jews were very zealous for human custom and tradition and for divine enactment only in so far as it was in harmony with these. They were zealous for their distinction as the chosen nation, for circumcision as the token of it, for their laws and customs as its fence and protection, but not zealous of God himself or his will as such. And therefore it came to pass that even the part of their service that was according to the law was unacceptable. The offering of sacrifices and the holding of feasts, which, as God said by Isaiah, had become intolerable. Isaiah 1, 11-14 On the same principle, Jesus taught that the natural relationship was of no force if there were not engrafted upon it the affectionate recognition of God, the loving submission to his will in all things, of which he himself was the highest example.